Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to Christopher Hawthorne. For the last 13 years, Christopher was the architecture critic for the Los Angeles Times, but back in March, he left that position to take on a brand new role as Los Angeles's first chief design officer. Working under the mayor there, Christopher is tasked with thinking about the public space and the development of the city, as well as engaging with the citizens in conversations around design and architecture and planning in Los Angeles. He's also taught at Occidental College, UC Berkeley, Columbia University, and the Southern California Institute of Architecture. But I was really interested in talking with Christopher about this new role and how he's been thinking through this transition. We talk about what it means to be a critic and how that's influenced his new job, as well as how he can use that writing background to help shape the public conversation around the future of design in Los Angeles. We also talk about his very early interest in architecture criticism when he started reading Paul Goldberger as a high school student and how the role of the architecture critic or the position of being a critic at a newspaper has changed over the course of his career. This was a such a fascinating conversation for me. Christopher has long been one of my favorite architecture writers and, and he's just so incredibly smart and articulate. And as this podcast has increasingly looked at the design of cities and urbanism and, and public space, I don't think there's a better person to talk to than Christopher, and, and especially from this kind of new position that he's in now. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. I throw in links from the month as well as uh, write kind of short little essays. These memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Christopher Hawthorne. start these conversations with just a little bit of background information and I'm especially I especially like talking to critics and talking to to writers uh, about their background because I'm always fascinated by kind of what came first in in your interest were you interested in kind of being a writer or or was architecture the thing that kind of got you into writing or was it the other way around it was really both. So I suppose the answer is, um, okay. depends when, how far we want to go back. That's um, up to you. If, if we want to go back to early childhood, I, you know, I grew up in a house designed by Julia Morgan, who mm. was the most prolific and most significant female architect in California in the 20th century. And um, she designed uh, a house in North Berkeley, um, finished in 1920, where I grew up up in where my parents still live. And so that was probably the beginning of my interest. Oh, wow. And as a result of buying that house, my parents became an architecture. And my mom led architectural walking tours um, and did programs in the Berkeley Public Schools around architecture and helped found the Berkeley Architectural Heritage Association, which was one of the many preservation, historic preservation groups that um, sprung yeah. up in American cities in the 1970s. So she took my third grade grade class, for example, um, at Thousand Oaks School in Berkeley on walking tours of, of different neighborhood architecture. So it was really the combination of living in that, in that house um, and having exposure yeah. to those tours and, and seeing my mom's own interest that was the beginning. And then 
in high school, though, I was very, I edited my high school paper, uh, mm. the Berkeley Hyde jacket. I was very interested in writing, and I was even aware by that point of architectural criticism because of Paul Goldberger's work in the New York Times. Right. Um, and I think we had a subscription to the New York Times whenever they started offering it in California. I'd have to go back and see what year that was mm. when home delivery. Oh, I mean, I remember my nice. parents driving out to get the paper at the places in Berkeley that, that sold the New York Times, and then there, I remember... Uh, to go back and ask my parents what year that was <laughs> when we started getting home deliveries and it was, yeah. as it was available I love that to Californians and so I was aware of of Paul Goldberger's work and the idea that that there was a job called architecture critic um, and I didn't really uh, so my interest was even though I had this long-standing interest in architecture I was not artistically inclined I was <laughs> okay. um, so I knew that my talent such as it was even in high school was on the writing side of that equation and then I went to college at Yale and studied um, took Vincent Scully's uh, oh nice courses and um, because of those and the and the Paul Goldberger connection to Yale was even more aware yeah. of an idea that that there was a career possible in architecture that wasn't about designing buildings was but was about being a historian or a critic. Um, and so I think my specific ambition to be an architecture career probably started uh, probably started then. Yeah, you know it's interesting. You don't hear that that story very often. Uh, I've been thinking about this. You know, this is somewhat related of, about you know you, how how kids get interested in a specific topic. You know whether it's architecture, and you think, well, then the goal is to be an architect. And so it's really interesting that you kind of were able to one, you saw that there was another way into this thing you were interested in, but then two, were able to kind of discern that your talents weren't in maybe being an architect, but in writing about it. Uh, is actually kind of really interesting. So when you were in, when you went to Yale, the goal was you're going to be an architecture critic. That was the plan. Not when I set out as a okay. freshman, I wouldn't say, but I I certainly knew that I was interested. And it's not as smooth um, as I'm making it perhaps sound because <laughs> there was no in those days there was no history or theory track in the architecture major i think that's right and they now have mm. that oh, okay. so i was not able to major in architecture despite my interest and so i was a political science specifically political philosophy major oh, interesting. and but i was always particularly in the last, last couple of, i would say the latter half of my under, undergraduate uh, career i was much more interested in architecture than poli sci and so i was taking as many architecture courses as I could, even though it wasn't my major. And then uh, most majors at Yale, you have to write a senior essay. And so I was I was determined to get as much architecture into that paper as I could. So I actually had advisors in both departments. Mm. And I wrote a paper that sort of split the difference um, between them. So I, I wrote nice. a senior essay looking at spaces that were used for political protest and get and and earned a reputation as as centers of political protest and looking analyzing them from a design urban planning architectural point of view oh interesting to say asking the question if there's a certain kind of design or approach to design that lends itself to spaces that that are used that way and if they're not necessarily designed for that purpose and i look specifically um, at Sproul Plaza on the UC Berkeley campus, which okay. after being um, remade by Vernon DeMars and Lawrence Halperin and a bunch of modernist architects um, in the early 1960s very quickly became the center of this free speech movement protests 
Um, and so it was really an excuse just to get as much architecture and planning into uh, a poli-sci senior essay as, as I could. I don't mean to do too much, you know, foreshadowing or stretch connections where there where there aren't any, but I think the political science background, you know, actually ends up kind of foreshadowing what I imagine, I'll, you know, has a connection now to the work that you're doing now. And I was interested if you saw connections or were you able to kind of make connections while you're in school between uh, political science and architecture. And it sounds like that was something you were kind of thinking about architecture that way, right, you know, very early on. I was, and I, but I've been thinking about that actually quite a bit, okay. as you might imagine, after yeah. taking this new job, thinking back to that intersection. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't thought about that as much when I was working as an architecture critic. So, of course, I'm thinking about it now in terms okay. of how political my job is now. But I would say I was attracted to those political philosophers who were writing about space or, you know, the you yeah. know work of uh, Baudrillard was really trendy right. when I was an undergraduate or, you know, only Lefebvre or people like that who are writing about, you know, um, political philosophy that talked about built space. Um, yeah. And and so I was attracted to that. Um that kind of work, there was a lot of postmodern uh, theory and philosophy that was being written in that period that also touched on architecture or city making or planning, right. urban design, that sort of thing. So I did find a, a kind of uh, way through the scholarship, I would say, to, to think about those connections. But I, ha I haven't thought of them quite, uh, quite as much until, mm. until starting yeah. at City Hall. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I want to talk... I want to just kind of finish this thread before we talk about your, about your new role because you sure. were, uh, and I don't mean to to kind of gloss over, you know your 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 background too much, but you were at the the Los Angeles Times for fifth like fifteen years almost, not quite so all, about thirteen okay. and a half so almost fourteen years so from the uh, fall of two thousand four to early part of this year. Okay. And I have a couple of questions kind of about that. So, you know, you're, I imagine, you know, reading Paul Goldberger that, um, you know, kind of being a architecture critic at a major newspaper was kind of the goal. Like that was the, the, you know, the best that someone could do in this line of work. Right. I think that's fair to say there weren't that many of those jobs. And well, yeah, that's, I, I that's what I was getting yeah, to. I also didn't, I didn't really imagine that one would open up. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's fair to say that I aspired to it in the ab, in the abstract. Okay. Um, but when I, I, I was surprised when I got a call from the LA times, um, I how, guess in the summer, spring or summer of 2004. And um, how did that happen then? So my predecessor, Nikolai Rusoff, um, got a job at the New York times, um, okay. uh, after, uh, Herbert Mouchamp and, right. Um, that was a period when the, the, the New York times was hiring a number of people away from the LA times. So Manola, mm. Manola Darges had just left, I think right around the same time or soon oh, after right. the film critic. Um, yeah. and that was really, a kind of golden age for the LA Times. So we were already owned by the Tribune Company. Okay. So we're already, we already had out of town ownership by that point, but um, the kind of tumult and uncertainty that then marked the next decade of ownership from Chicago had not really affected the paper. And so we were, I think, arguably the LA Times was the, I still, I still say we, forgive me. Um, <laughs> right. The LA Times was arguably the best paper in the country. 
Wednesday at that point. So um, uh, John Carroll was the editor who hired me. Dean Kay is now running the New York Times. Oh yeah, was the number two. And there was just a huge amount of ambition. I think um, we were doing work both internationally and nationally, certainly on the culture pages they think were in the country. So it was to join, join the paper, but it opened up only because, um, because Nikolai went from LA to New York. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you started answering kind of the question that I was, you know, starting to get to, which was, you know, that, that there aren't a lot of architecture critics at newspapers. And I imagine even since you started that that number is increasingly dropping. And I'm, I'm kind of the, I'm curious about kind of that, how that field or that kind of mode of work has changed in those, you know, 13 years. Uh, and even, you know, someone's aspirations who were doing, who would want to do something like that. Right. It's changed in a remarkable way. Um, and I should also say in terms of my childhood that I, I should, I should mention Alan Temko's name. He was the oh. architecture critic at the Chicago, at the San Francisco Chronicle, um, who won a Pulitzer. So I was also reading his work when I was a kid. Um, and those were the two papers that arrived, you know, at our house every morning, the right. Chronicle and the New York times. And, um, he really focused on San Francisco and the Bay area, but he, um, he was he was doing excellent work throughout those years, um, and in fact, you know things. So to answer your question, if things have changed, and the number, the, the ranks, you know, full time architecture critics at newspapers have thinned. But you know, there was a moment when that actually happened before I got my job. So when mm. I got out of college, I graduated in, in 1993. That recession was particularly tough in um real estate and architecture right. and there just wasn't a lot getting built and so that period the middle 90s actually a lot of newspapers or uh, some newspapers were losing their architecture critics and deciding not to replace them or magazines um so when alan temko left there was actually a gap at the san francisco chronicle before john king who's now still oh. doing very good work there took on that job so there was a moment where the, the the ranks seemed to be shrinking even in the middle 90s. And I was so just to fill in that part of my background. <laughs> I, so I graduated. I moved back to I moved to um, Seattle and I worked very briefly at the Seattle Weekly uh, okay. Weekly. And then I traveled around the world for a while. I moved back to the Bay Area in 1994, hoping to write about architecture. But there was just nothing being <laughs> built and no pieces being assigned. Yeah. And so I got a job at the East Bay Express, which is an alternative weekly. In, um, in those days, it was in Emeryville. And um, I was the arts editor and the theater critic, actually. Oh, nice. Um, and writing some film criticism and really hoping for a chance to be writing about architecture and, and not finding too many opportunities. So I remember I wrote a piece. This may have been the very first review I did. I reviewed the Charles Moore um, um, Haas Business School at UC Berkeley. Oh, yeah. Um, which is a really interesting late Moore project, uh, which I think has held up rather well, actually, over the years. And But there were just so few things opening. I remember the Gap opened something in San Francisco. There were a couple of projects in the Bay Area, but it was really slim pickings. And so I was doing other work and, and really um, focusing my, my, my critical work on theater. Um, and that was also a really interesting moment in Bay Area theater. So Carrie Perloff at ACT and Tony Taconi at Berkeley Rep doing okay. a lot of Kushner work and 
really interesting things happening uh, in 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 Bay Area theater. But I was really looking around for opportunities to be writing about, <laughs> yeah, about buildings. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it wasn't until I moved to New York to take a fellowship at Columbia in a, in a now, sadly now defunct program called the National Arts Journalism Program, which is a mid-career journalism fellowship for arts and culture writers, not specifically for critics, but it gave um, me and my now wife an opportunity to move to New York and okay. really take classes in anything that I was interested in. I did a lot of architecture, of course. And, right. Um, but then by the time I finished that fellowship in 1999, the economy had really turned around. Bill Bow had opened and there was this new wave of interest. And suddenly it seemed that most um, newspaper and magazine art uh, editors were looking to commission architecture pieces again, which made it possible for me to start writing full time just about architecture, which I was able to do for the first time in New York in yeah. 99 after finishing that program at Columbia. Yeah, it's interesting, um, you know, that you mentioned Bill Bow. I read another interview that you had done in preparing for this, and and uh, I forget which one it was, um, but y you mentioned Bill Bow, and the, the person interviewing you, you know, kind of remarked that the Bill Bow effect didn't just affect architects, but also affected architecture writing in a lot of ways, which I thought was was actually a kind of really interesting um, analysis there, and it and you kind of were able to to ride that wave, I guess. Oh, absolutely. So it was um, it was not just Bill Bow. It was the economy turning around. It was you know the Getty opened the mm. same fall as Bill Bow, nineteen ninety seven. There was suddenly a lot of new. It was the beginning, I guess, of what we now think of as the, you know, the architecture era. Right. But um, you know, every mag, you know, magazine editors seemed to think that architecture was a subject that they really needed to be covering. Right. And so it was, you know, and I'd had a year. I had the luxury of having a year in New York to meet, you know, to build some relationships with editors, and I started doing some work for Metropolis, and you know. Um, uh, Martin Peterson, whose name you've probably heard from yep. other guests, yeah. was um, was one of my editors there and uh, was commissioning pieces. And I was, you know, working with a lot of a lot of really smart young writers and editors. Um, and then Michael Cannell was editing Architecture Magazine, uh, or he was an editor at Architecture Magazine, and he then went on to the New York Times and okay. became my editor there. And um, I was writing uh, for Slate for Jody Cantor, who's oh yeah, now become very famous for um, uh, her her work on on the Harvey Weinstein and Me Too stories. Yeah. Um, but she was my editor at Slate, where I was their I think their first architecture critic, and then she moved to the New York Times, and I wrote for her and other people there. Okay. So it was just a moment, and this is sort of late '90s, early 2000s, when um, there seemed to be significant and new demand for architecture coverage right and so how did that you know so then then you settle in you know you get this job in LA you kind of settle into that I'm interested in kind of how you saw your role now that you were like within an institution this was your job how did that role change over your time at the paper I think I came into it um really wanting to write more about urbanism planning and the, and the politics that surround architecture than okay. my predecessor had. Okay. So Nikolai's focus was much more on, you know, architects and, and buildings in a, I suppose one could say more traditional sense, but I was interested in writing about the city and, and, and fascinated in, mm. in large part by how much I had to learn about Los Angeles. So 
another part of that um, transition for me was I had moved back from New York to the Bay Area and I was teaching at the journalism school at UC Berkeley when Orville Schell was the dean and he um, had a remarkable group of writers teaching there. And um, so we had, he, Orville's a China expert and we had cooked up a plan to do a class on, on cities and what w- was kind of the first stirrings of the kind of globalization. Mm. Mm-hmm. you know, wave. Um, and we had cooked up this idea to do a class on, on a different city every spring and they had some money to take the students to travel. Oh, nice. So we decided we'd do a, cl- a course on Shenzhen as a kind of oh. um, study of the instant, you know, kind of just add water Chinese. Right. And with some advice from Orville about how that might look. And, and it was, I was beginning to put together a syllabus in the early stages when I got the job offer from the LA Times. And so um, I went back and forth between the Bay Area and LA for the first year of the job because my wife had just taken a new <laughs> job in San Francisco. We had okay. just had our first kid. And so <laughs> right, it gave me a right. year to sort of go back and forth. And so I was continuing to teach this class. And I quickly realized that I needed to remake that Shenzhen course and make it a course about Los Angeles mm. as a way to do all the right. reading that I knew <laughs> I was going to need to do anyway. So yeah. that was, I think I'd read a little Bantam and a little Mike Davis City of Course by that point, but I mm-hmm. put all those people on the syllabus and it was really, you know, reading through that canon of literature as a way to get myself um, uh, more firmly situated in Los Angeles and sort of learn everything I needed to learn. So I was fascinated by the city and how, how difficult it can be to read uh, or understand yeah. as an outsider. Um, so that was an interest of mine, and I knew that I wanted to write about the city and other cities too. I wanted to write about planning, and in those early days, just in terms of the my approach, I mean, I but I was also interested in the full spectrum of criticism and really writing about individual buildings as well. So we had you know a travel budget that probably doesn't not. <laughs> <laughs> um, in place at the LA Times and other or other places. So I was basically if there was a new building somewhere around the world i was basically able to make the case to my editors that i needed to go see it so oh nice um i was able to travel do a lot of traveling in those early years and and we were also you know really ambitious as a paper in terms of our you know we still the la Times still has a remarkable group of critics and early on um i mean this is the kind of assignment that is you know um uh remarkable when you're early in a job like that one of my editors said we're doing this package uh, with the travel section where we're going to send each critic to a different city around the world. Mm. And we want you to nominate mm-hmm. four or five cities that would be of interest in your field. And so I can't remember all the cities on my list, but um, there were some Latin American cities and they ended up and, and some Asian ones. And they sent me to Shanghai for a week to just to write about the architecture of Shanghai. Um, yeah. while the, you know, the movie critics were going to other cities and the, the you know, classical That's music nice. critic was going somewhere else and the food critic somewhere else. And writing about um, those cities through the lens of criticism in their particular field. So, um, and there were a lot of those kind of package critical stories, as I recall, that were a kind of sign, as I was saying, of the ambition of the paper in those days. So there was another moment where they asked all the critics to write an essay on regret, which is to mm. say, was there ever a review that we regretted? Oh, interesting. Um, and I think what I said um, was that I... I, I've never regretted my judgment about a building, um, and that 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 just you know that sort of judgment hits me really quickly. But every time I've regretted some part of how I phrased how mm. I made the argument, right? So <laughs> yeah, right. I always regret the writing part of it. I've never come to 
feel that I made a disastrously oh that's interesting um, bad judgment about the quality of uh, of the architecture itself so it's more a question of how to articulate the feeling that you get right you know, the judgment that you're making almost instantaneously but I always regret um, you know how I phrase something and I always wish I could go back and rewrite it yeah not the judgment itself <laughs> kind of going off of that how did you see how did you see your role as someone who was both writing about the city, writing about individual buildings in the city, potentially writing about people in the city for people who live there? You know, where you're kind of this this person that's between all of these parties, whether it is the, you know, the government or the architects or the builders or the public. What what did you see as your role in writing about that? Um and in, in kind of communicating between the, those groups? I think it shifted over time. I think I was careful at the beginning. I, w- I was mindful of, of not getting on too many soapboxes right. too early right. in terms of, you know, what we might think of as activist criticism. I mm-hmm. did a lot yeah. more of that later on in my tenure okay. because I did have a sense that I had a lot to learn about the city. And, and the last thing I wanted to do was come in and lecture. Angelinos about their own city right. when I was still getting to know it. So I was careful about that. But I did want to situate architecture and architecture criticism within a larger discussion about the future of the city. That was very important to me from the beginning. And I think there was a, a real interest and hunger among readers to have that kind of conversation about the city. And it was clear from those early days that the city was beginning to navigate a significant transition, which is still navigating, mm-hmm. um, trying to establish its kind of 21st century or post-suburban identity. And that there was a lot of, I think it struck me really early on that there was a, a, a lot of material mm-hmm. um, to be to be mined um, in that vein. And um, so I was I was very interested in those kind of larger questions about planning and urbanism, preservation, how the city thinks about history. You know, one of my early early pieces was uh, on the um, debate over the fate of the Ambassador Hotel. Mm-hmm. which when I started, so this is late 2004, early 2005, it had it was owned by the LAUSD, the school district, and there were plans in place to replace the hotel, uh, which had been out of use for many years with a complex of schools. Um, mm-hmm. And some of your listeners will probably be aware of the history of that building, but it was designed by Myron Hunt. It was the site of many of the early Academy Award ceremonies. Oh, okay. It was the site where Bobby Kennedy was shot in 1968. He didn't die on the site, but he was shot in the pantry leading off of the auditorium um, at the Ambassador um, in June of 1968. So it had this amazing cultural and political history on top of its um, architectural significance. But the... um, Although Donald Trump did own the site for a while. Are you serious? Yes, he proposed proposed what would have been the tallest building on the West Coast um, for the site. Um, By the time I was writing about it, the the sort of opponents of the the preservation groups in town um, were not, you know, black-hatted developers like Donald Trump. They were a school district (laughs) who wanted to build a complex of schools in a part of the city that was really desperately in need of more. Um, of more schools and where some kids were being bused all the way to San Fernando Valley. So spending, you know, a couple hours, if not more on the bus every day. Um, and there was a heavily, uh, Latino, particularly immigrant, um, neighborhood. And so it was a really complicated set of questions right, and right. complicated calculus. And so the essay that I wrote 
It was just about um, how, how do you try to think about that calculus when you have a building that has, has a certain architectural significance um, on top of a certain cultural and uh, political significance given the Academy Awards Hollywood connection and the Coco nightclub was also there and then given mm. the, the fact that it was the site of the um, uh, the, the site of, of uh, Bobby Kennedy's um, shooting. So the all of that wrapped together um, suggested a really interesting and complicated question about how we deal with you know memory, history, and preservation in Los Angeles, which is a city of ourselves that you know that hasn't always tended to its own architectural past particularly well or thoughtfully. That actually leads into you know, kind of your new role because in March you became you left your job. Uh, at the times and became the Los Angeles's chief design officer. And so I have two questions around that. One, I would love for you to just kind of describe what a chief design officer for a city like Los Angeles does or what that role is or kind of how you, now that you've been in a couple of months, how it's shaping up. And then two, and, you know, a little bit maybe sub sub question is how that even came about and and was that something you were looking for or how how did this kind of seem like the next step for you the job i think the easiest way to describe it is that i am the chief architecture um, across the city and it's a position that's appointed by eric garcetti the mayor um and so that apathy it really falls, I would say, into three categories. There are specific sites and projects that I'm looking at that the mayor or someone else has asked me to look at or have significant importance, and we really want to get them right from an architecture design point of view. Mm-hmm. So there's a list of those projects and sites that I've been working on, and they are in varying degrees of completion in terms of design. So some are very early in the design process, and I'm really engaged in a wide-ranging set of questions about um, their their goals as, as works of architecture. Um, some are much further along the design process and I'm working with the architects and agencies to kind of refine the design, prove it in ways. So that's one category. The second okay. category is initiatives that I'm, that I'm trying to launch myself from this office. And that has to do in part with the larger policy frameworks that we're making across the city. So we're redoing our zoning code for the first time since the 40 writing community plans um, for um, neighborhoods across the city, and those projects are underway but not finished. And I think, to the extent that there's some policy changes or tweaks or um, goals that we have um, in the mayor's office, there's an opportunity to fold some of those into those larger frameworks, mm, okay. um, which are largely being overseen by the by the planning department. Um, and then other initiatives that have to do with, you know, rethinking how we do design review across the city, um, thinking in connection with that ambassador piece, we think about history and memory. Um, mm. Not only do we, so that, that involves specific, some specific uh, preservation initiatives. I'd really like to extend our, um, we have a, a very, very comprehensive um well-designed database of historic resources called Survey LA, which was executed by the planning department with funding from the Getty mm. and other sources. And, and it ends in 1980, and I'm interested um, through the 80s and 90s because I think, A, we have a particularly rich stock of buildings from that period, early work by the LA School architects, Frank Gehry, Morphosis, uh, Frank Israel, right. long list. Um, and 
I think we're as we're seeing in battle, you know, in preservation debates over the AT&T building in New York or the right, yeah. Thompson Center in Chicago or even more recently the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego with its um, Venturi Scott Brown edition. More and more, I think cities are going to be grappling with preservation debates over really recent architecture. So architecture from the 80s or even the mm-hmm. mid or late 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of preservation advocacy tends to be focused on older buildings or think about a kind of 50-year threshold for determining the importance of a building. So I'm really interested in um, putting together some kind of catalog of our important uh, landmarks from the 80s and 90s and then, and then having... Um, some public conversations and b- building a kind of sophistication and constituency for those buildings so that when we do start to have those debates, um, which we will inevitably, we have um, we, we have the beginnings of a public conversation about what about those buildings and that architectural moment is important to us. And then in a larger sense, just thinking about how we can engage in a more thoughtful way with history and memory in our new projects. We have mm-hmm. had a tendency in the city when we're faced with difficult sites to kind of sweep the site clean and go for a kind of right. process solution. We're not unique in that, but I'm interested in, in, in a couple of pro- a couple of particular sites I'm looking at now, whether we can have a, a design and planning approach that is um, willing to engage with sometimes fraught and difficult history um, rather than trying to, to wipe that slate clean. Um, so there are a number of those initiatives that, that, um, that touch on policy, preservation, um, history, I'm thinking in the opposite direction in, in, in terms of um, putting together some design guidelines for new, new mobility, for example. Mm. So thinking about the urban design implications of um, everything from scooters and e-bikes to <laughs> autonomous vehicles right. to, you know, eventually the world of flying, you know, passenger drones and flying taxis and the kind of gondolas, which we're planning a couple of in the city. So oh, interesting. Um, which is fascinating to me to think about the kind of um, public right-of-way, which we have thought about as extending in two dimensions along roadways, now extending into the air and into three dimensions and thinking about what the urban design implications of all of that are. Um, and uh, so those are among the, you know, some of them, as I said, will have very specific um, yeah. um kinds of goals and some will be somewhat more amorphous i'm really interested for example in the question of shade in an era of climate change Mm. as an equity issue so when we we, as we're trying to reinvest in our public realm um, which is really a significant part of of infrastructure and and public investment in los angeles at the moment and will be for the next generation um in an era of climate change you know the the exposure to heat and sun you know really tends to fall on our most vulnerable and right um so thinking about shade that question of how you fold if 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 more shade is a is a goal from a policy point of view again in a rather amorphous fashion how do you fold that into specific policy goals is that something that goes into a zoning or community plan process and if what are the mechanisms beyond tree canopy that might achieve that you know those kinds of places where a broader goal re- you know meets a, a yeah. specific set of policy questions is where i'm most interested in applying my work and then the third category is uh public engagement so the mayor is very interested in um in that public conversation uh which which and building kind of more sophisticated uh dialogue um around issues connected to architecture planning urban design and that leads to the 
answer to the second part of your question, which is about how this came about. Um, I have taught for many years at Occidental College here in Los Angeles, and I do a public affairs series as part of that work. So I teach a seminar in the spring that is um, held Wednesday evenings, and every few weeks the class time is given over to a public event Mm. um, connected to the future of Los Angeles in one way or another. So I did an event with the mayor after he was elected in the um, very early version of that of that series, um, talking about architecture planning, um, you know, really for a full 90 minutes or so. He's very interested and smart about these issues. And then when he was reelected, he asked if we could do it again. So we did a second version of that conversation at Occidental. And he we started talking in that conversation of just about how other cities approach this kind of question, how to build um, more ambition around architecture and design and then a more sophisticated conversation into a kind of, um, into an administration, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, and that is something that he had been thinking about long before that, I think from the early days of his administration and then, and the the other wrinkle, which was interesting and part of how I was writing about his reelection, was that the the electoral calendar was moved in Los Angeles, so that uh, um, although he's term limited to two terms, um, the second term was extended um, because of a shift from elections um, from spring of odd years to fall of even years, and so his second oh, term interesting. Is four years is about five and a half years, which pushes his two terms close almost to a decade. Right, and a decade at a moment when Los Angeles is going through this um, the shift that I talked about earlier, and has really this is really what makes in some ways this opportunity really fascinating, compelling in terms of why I was interested in making the, this leap is that we have, as a city and county, we have taxed ourselves to pay for transit, uh, for new new parks, open space, housing. Um, a lot of investment is connected to the river. We have the Olympics um, coming right. in 10 years. And so um, there's been a very clear message from the voters that that we want to invest and we're willing to tax ourselves to pay for investment in new infrastructure, new kinds of mobility and transportation, mm. um, but also in public space and open space and parks and, and, and in rethinking our, um, our housing strategies. And so there's funding attached to each number of those initiatives the transit the last transit measure alone measure m passed in in 2016 will raise something like 120 billion dollars oh wow not all not all of it earmarked for transit there are okay. roadway and other measures in there but the lion's share of it to, to to public transit so um and the decisions about how that money is spent particularly as it relates to the issues that i'm working on urban design and architecture um will, will you know will largely be made in the next in the next few years um and so it seemed like a, a really um, opportune moment to be taking on a position like this and thinking about a more co- coordinated strategy about architecture and planning. Yeah, yeah. I have I have a couple more quick questions, but I want to I want to kind of respond to that for a second. I have a, a hearing you talk about that. I have a little bit of a theory that I, I haven't fully articulated. I'd love to kind of run it by you and see what you see what you think um because i was really struck by the second part of your your answer about public engagement and i think i think there's something really key to that side of it to to the role of a chief design officer for a, a city and especially a big city like los angeles and i think it's it would be really easy and perhaps uh 
reductive to see a chief design officer role as just being someone that's kind of creating some sort of unified uh, design system or architecture system or, or urban system for the city. And I think without that, without that public engagement side, uh, it becomes a sort of Robert Moses-esque role where it's kind of just person on high kind of directing out the city and directing how the city is built. But then when you add in this kind of task of engaging the public and almost raising the public's uh, consciousness or awareness of design, it it moves it away from that that Moses type role into something that's very communal. And I'm wondering if that is why a job like this, someone like you is is perfect for that of coming from a critic's perspective, where a critic is kind of doing that also. You know what I you know what I mean? Yes, yes. I have many I have many thoughts on this okay, um, <laughs> on this set of questions. I would I would say um, I would say first that 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 was part of I think why the, you know as the mayor has explained it part part of why he thought of me for this job is that I have a body of work as a critic where I have you know certainly not been afraid to have a point of view right and was in fact paid to have a point of view about about particular uh, projects and buildings and architecture more broadly. Um, but that I had been doing this series of convenings through this um, third Los Angeles series at, at, at Occidental. Um, and then it was that combination of things, you know, having a point of view and certainly a set of ambitions um, uh, and having articulated uh, that point of view and those ambitions in my writing, but also using the the platform of the Oxy series to kind of right. um, to kind of engage in a broader conversation. I would say, there's no there's no city that has no big city in America that has fewer platforms for that kind of conversation than Los Angeles mm. historically and no city needs them more at the present moment right um, yeah. because of how much is changing but to the to the Robert Moses point I'm sure many people listening in Los Angeles at least would la- will laugh at that because I think we have the opposite problem um, oh interesting um, far from giving rise to a Robert Moses, we, we have a structure of governance that is really fragmented. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you keep in mind, this is coming from design. someone in New York. I mean, I'm really, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm interested in the, in the history of this, but it, 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 to a certain extent, it was by design mm. um, that, that people coming here, um, particularly when Los Angeles was kind of first articulating um, a, a set of civic goals in the teens and twenties when the city was really growing by leaps and bounds, a lot of people who were coming from elsewhere were coming from places where machine politics, mm. you know, were, were mm. really shaping those cities. This is pre Robert Moses, but let's say, you know, coming from New York or Chicago oh, interesting. Um, and, and wanting a city that was organized differently. Um, and so um, part of it was strategic, but more than that is just a kind of the way that the um, structures of governance have grown up over time. There is, um, there are, there's a lot of space, let's say between city, county, and then other agencies that are entirely oh, outside right. of either. So we have, um, you know, Metro is doing this transit expansion. That's a county agency, although there are seats that the mayor controls, um, the LAUSD is, is independent of city control. And then there is historically a lot of interest in, um, uh, and work done by individual city council offices around planning and land use decisions. Um, and so the result of that is a, is a kind of fragmented system where there has been less of a, a common sort of civic vision. And I think, 
I think the, the, the mayor, as he's explained it, is interested in exactly as you said it, I think um, um, uh, sees this role as a way to broaden the conversation but right. not be prescriptive. And the right. great, you know, the great history of L.A. architecture is the, you know, the kind of eclecticism, independence, variety, idiosyncrasy even of that of that work. So th- this is in some ways the challenge of uh, an opportunity of the job in a nutshell, because the you know the, the great strength of Los Angeles has been its openness, its tolerance. Um, it's a place where you can come. It's 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 openness to new ideas and innovation, in a whole bunch of realms. Um, the idea mm-hmm. here that it's been a great vehicle for individual ambition of all kinds, from Hollywood to architecture, right um, to the art world. The flips and nobody really cares what anybody else is doing, you know, and it's very tolerant in a fantastic way in that sense. The flip side of that is it's been a very difficult place uh, and a tricky place to advance a kind of collective vision of, of what we want to be as a city and region. Um, but we right. need the, that conversation to happen more given this massive investment that we're making in infrastructure and other projects that touch on the public realm. So the challenge is how to, A, I would say for me, take some of the innovation and experimentation that has marked the great private realm architecture, you know, residential architecture of Los Angeles, um, and bring it into the public projects that we're investing mm-hmm. in so heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, and then B, how to strike some kind of a balance between, you know, that tolerance and openness to new ideas with the need for a kind of more coherent idea about, you know, how various um, new public uh, realm projects relate to one another, and then how, how that relates again to the, also to private development in terms of, right. um, in terms of promoting um, promoting better architecture on the private side as well. What has it been like to go from being someone, you know, basically kind of on the outside writing about this to being someone who's actually like very much involved in shaping the development of the city? Has that kind of shift in perspective uh, changed how you think about these things? It has, and that was one of the really attractive things about the job. So when you asked me, you know, why I decided to do it, it was it was difficult and to to the extent that my old job was really the only job as we discussed that I ever aspired to have, right. you know, and I was really <laughs> felt lucky to have it. And I was also, I also had it at a moment when Los Angeles was, you know, the most interesting city in the country to write about. I mm-hmm. don't think there's any doubt about that, given, given yeah. how much is changing, especially for a critic who was interested, not just in buildings, but in, you know, the kind of larger forces shaping the city. Yeah. There's no city that where as much as up is as up for grabs as is the case in Los Angeles. And so um, it, that was difficult to give up. And I had a huge amount of autonomy, too. At the times, I really had the ability to write about, um, you know, the subjects that I thought were important. And I had space in the paper to do it. So those mm-hmm. were, you know, those were great luxuries and hard to give up. I think the opportunity was really um, as you said, to, to look at the process from a different point of view um, and to understand how it worked from this perspective. And it has been absolutely an education, even in three months, um, in, yeah. uh, in that sense, in a fascinating way. Um, and it's also, you know, it's in some ways the job is similar. It seems like an, an extension of what I was doing before when I'm meeting on an individual project, let's say with architects and Mm-hmm. And, and, and clients from various public agencies and I'm, you know, offering thoughts about what, how, the, how the design might be improved or having a conversation about that. You know, that's very similar. I'm using my brain in a very similar way to how mm-hmm. I used to. In other ways, it's completely and radically different. And I <laughs> yeah. would say the biggest, um, easiest way to explain that is just thinking about 
you know, how you build relationships and, and influence within city government, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as opposed to my old job where I had a platform to, you know, um, make a case right. um, for a particular project or approach. And that was, and there, it's also very, it's as complicated as writing criticism is. There's certain ways in which the product itself is quite discreet and it's you're able to measure your progress in a very clear way in terms of what what your output is as a critic what's being published um, and on what subjects and it's very easy for the public also on the outside to get a sense of what you're doing what you're focusing on and um, all of that of course is much more amorphous within within city government so there's some places where I'm having you know as I mentioned direct conversations about the the direction of a, of a building or project and others where it's really much more about building relationships and seeing what's possible. And there's so much happening that of course I'm not able and, you know, be foolish to try to wade into everything. And so I really have to figure out where the particular influence of an office like this can be most effective, um, in helping advance what the mayor is interested in doing, helping advance, you know, his goals about promoting good architecture and design across the city. So it's really thinking about how to be most effective, um, how we can make our investments in design architecture most efficient. You know, so these various investments are complementary. So that part of the job is quite different. And um, um, with the way I've explained it uh, to other people is that, you know, I have a clear sense already, although my list is probably too long and I do have to <laughs> color it down a little bit, but I, I have a clear sense of what I want to try to accomplish. Um, and I've been, you know, putting together that list in the time that I've been here and thinking about what's feasible. Mm-hmm. And I, because of my training as a critic in my old job, I have, you know, it's, it's not difficult for me to articulate why we need to do those things as, right. a, you know, as a city, as a, um, as a region. And the how is, of course, you know, the 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 tricky and interesting part. So what what the most effective way to execute a particular goal is through the city government? You know, where are the way where are the places where a particular idea that we have some consensus, uh, you know, about um, can gain traction and how it can be best promoted or executed. So that's really how I've been thinking about it. And there's no, as I said, there's no shortage of interesting ways to kind of ask those questions. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting to me to think about, you know, to hear you say that you see this as kind of a direct, there's a direct line from the work you were doing before to what you're doing now. And I, I completely agree with you. I want to come back to something you said very early on about how you, you don't regret, um, you know, judgments necessarily, but, um, you know, ways of the way you said it or the way you wrote it. And I'm kind of curious how, how that kind of craft of writing fits into this, this new role. And are you doing much writing and how does writing kind of fit into developing these plans and building these relationships now? So there are bits and pieces of writing, you know, (laughs) the part of what we do is, um, there are, you know, nominations for architects for various prizes. So Mm. I've been helping writing, writing some of those applications. Um, I've been writing in, in response to sort of interview questions and then also articulating, you know, within the city, um, you know, my goals on various projects. Um, but I have been thinking about the larger question, which is to say, should there be a kind of outlet? Um, you know, I think in, at certain moments when I want to make a case for a particular project, you know, there are probably places where I can write a, yeah. a piece like that. Um, but then in a more regular sense, I've been thinking about whether it, it would um, be useful to have some kind of regular outlet to write about important buildings or 
you know, as part of the public engagement process. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about the way that, you know, Jonathan Gold, my former colleague, uh, the food critic of the LA Times who just died. Right. And the, and the great influence that he had um, in the city. And, you know, he, he was a fascinating, I, I think his particular skill as a critic has been sort of under discussed. You know, oh. people have been talking about how he promoted a certain reading of Los Angeles, which he did. And changed the way food was written about but even right. just for me as a fellow critic to think about the how he approached the craft of criticism was quite interesting his use of the second person for example which was really mm, not an easy right. thing to do to pull off and he was really remarkably good at that but um but i've been thinking about on the one hand he often he, he rarely wrote negative things about restaurants and this is the difference i suppose between restaurants and and architecture <laughs> you know you can ignore a new restaurant and choose not to go there in a way that it's not right true of a new yeah. skyscraper right and i think architecture critics have a responsibility to write about big new projects and there's certain things that they really must, you know, confront as critics. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, you can be a book critic or, or a, um, a restaurant critic and sort of choose things that you want to celebrate and, and promote in a different way. The exception to that was that he, when he did, he did this list every year of 101 restaurants, which the Times published as a book, which is incredible. Okay. You know, you see it in every household in Los Angeles. Um, and he ranked, he actually made a point of ranking not just including the best restaurants but ranking them in order which mm. i thought was really fantastic in an age when most people say all these judgments are relative right you know really making a stand and saying you know i have the expertise to say this is you know in my view the most significant restaurant right now in los angeles and then rank the rest of the 101 in, in order <laughs> right um and so the way that that book uh, sort of as a document you know operated in the city has made me think about you know um what role writing should or could play in my new position and so my answer is i haven't quite figured that out but it is something i've given some thought to yeah yeah i mean you're you know you're you're such a, a great writer and someone that i've loved reading for so long that it, it almost feels a shame to you know for us to to lose that you know um uh my last question and this is a a question that i I end all of these conversations with, and you've you've mentioned so many people already in this conversation. But I'm I'm really curious who are the um, the the books, the writers, the critics that have really influenced how you think about all of this, or even you know the people that you're reading right now that that's kind of shaping how you think about your your new role. Right. So I could give an extraordinarily long answer sure. to this question. I did. I, I I taught that class that I mentioned it at. Um, at UC Berkeley, where I, I made a syllabus out of books about Los right. Angeles, and then I sort of recreated that in public when I did a project called Reading LA, I think six or seven years ago now, where I read through the canon of literature of books about Los Angeles, architecture, and urbanism. So I ended up reading and writing short essays about, I think, 27 books altogether oh, wow. over the course of a year. So I was basically re reading two, two books a month, roughly. And um, and so that was, and those were just nonfiction books by, with a couple of exceptions, just nonfiction books with single authors. Okay. Um, so I was not reading, you know, there's, you could have a whole separate list of fiction that engages with, you know, the built environment in Los Angeles. But so that was an incredibly useful exercise. Um, and so the, the, the only conclusion I came to is special place ops in the canon for both plane. Um, all of Los Angeles and a kind of unified theory. So there are three really important. Mm. Karen McWilliams uh, went on to edit the nation, um, but came out of the LA Times 
1946, right after the war, called Los Angeles, the, um, uh, an island on the land. Um, and that was really the first uh, comprehensive book about Los Angeles as a, um, as a civic entity and in terms of its built environment and cultural history. And then Rainer Banham, right. a generation later in 1971, Architecture of Four Ecologies. Um, and then Mike Davis's book, um, another 20 years almost after that, published in 1990, City of Courts. Um, so those three books stand out as the as the three books that really tried to make a that's um, great comprehensive argument about what Los Angeles meant. And then there are many writers, I would say Esther McCoy, who really invented architectural criticism. Oh yeah, in Los Angeles has been hugely influential. Um, uh, I teach Anna Devere Smith's um, play Twilight Los Angeles, which is if you're not familiar with her, yeah, I don't know that theater. She um, really approaches it from a documentarian or journalistic point of view. So she interviews, um, she interviews dozens and dozens of people, and then she turns that work into a one-woman show where she sort of channels the voices of these various characters. And she did one about the riot, about the civic unrest, and Rodney King. Oh, interesting. Um, commissioned by Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, um, and so that. That's a really remarkable document of, of Los Angeles at that moment, just a few years after um, City of Courts. So that's an important one. Um, and then in terms of, um, you know, more recent figures, um, there, you know, Bill Deverell, who's a historian at USC, is a good friend of mine who's, okay. who's writing one of the most prominent historians. His work on Los Angeles history has been really influential for me um he wrote a one just one title i'll mention that he co-wrote with greg heiss was to rescue a 1929 plan by the olmstead brothers mm. um uh sons of frederick law olmstead and right. ellen bartholomew landscape architect they were commissioned by the um, chamber of commerce in the late 20s to produce a, a really far-reaching open space parks and open space plan for los angeles county and they produced a document of really astonishing both design sophistication and political sophistication calling for a whole connected network of parks and also argued for letting land along the LA river stay undeveloped so that it could flood and be open space that could also, um, mm. uh, collect stormwater. Um, and it was so far reaching. It even, it even had, um, sample documentation for, um, legislation in the back Oh, wow. Um, and for uh, financing of these projects. And it was so forward looking that I think it scared the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, <laughs> and they realized that it might threaten the real estate ambitions of some of the uh, members of the chamber who had even who had commissioned the project. And so they shelved it. And then the, and then the recession, then the depression, excuse me, hit and then it never recovered. So um, Bill Deverell and Greg Heiss rescued this document. Um, republished it, um, sort of put it in historical context, and there's an mm. afterward interview with Lori Olin, the landscape architect. It's a fantastic book called Eden by Design, okay. which I recommend. Um, and then I would say these days, um, Alyssa, who you've talked to yep. in terms of people writing about Los Angeles, um, my my former colleague uh, Carolina Miranda, mm, writing yeah. about LA, um, Gustavo Ariano, who has written about food as well as LA and, and Orange County history now writing a column for the LA Times. His work is, um, uh, has meant a lot. Um, and Jonathan Gold, of course, I'm thinking right. a lot about his work um, 
because of his recent death, but also just the way that he managed to, to use uh, food criticism um, to tell a certain story about Los Angeles, right. particularly yeah. about the kind of diaspora of immigrant communities, you know, across the whole county, um, and stitched together a story about contemporary Los Angeles that was, you know, and the outpouring uh, since his death has really made clear how yeah. know, important that larger story was to all of his readers. So, you know, I'm sure many people have talked about Ada Louise Huxtable. Oh yeah, um, and I and I think it's interesting to 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 talk about her work in connection with contemporary architectural criticism. Okay. Um, you know, I, I got to know her only a little bit late in her life and her archive is now at the Getty. So I think that she will, you know, there will be a really interesting relationship between her archive and Los Angeles over the next, you know, mm. several years, which is really fascinating to contemplate. Um, but also, you know, I think for me, she was always a model you know, she's remembered for having written about politics and real estate and right. planning and all those things that I mentioned. And, and she really did that. She did it in a very hard nosed way. But I think what we sometimes forget is that if you go back and look at her work, her body of work in a typical year, she was also really writing quite a bit about architecture as architecture and, mm. and individual architects, bodies of work and individual buildings. Mm. Um, and so I think what's been lost a little bit is that she was writing across the whole spectrum. And that was always really my right. ambition is not to neglect planning and politics and, and urbanism, but but also not neglect the side of the spectrum, which is to say, you know, architecture uh, at the level of the individual building and um, the yeah. importance of reviews of individual buildings to the story that a city tells about itself. And so. You know, we're, we have been in a, I, one of the things I was trying to do in my last few years was not just honor the kind of political part of her legacy, but but the other end of that spectrum and really um, make a point of writing about individual buildings as well as these larger issues, because I think that is fundamental to the responsibility of any architecture critic. And she did that more than I think we sometimes tend to remember. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's a yeah, I'm glad I'm glad that you added that. And I think, you know, I think that you you've done a good job of that. Also, and I can't wait to uh, uh, to see kind of what you do next and, and what you do in this role. So, um, you know, good luck with the new job, and thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, this it's was my pleasure. A blast. Thanks for yeah, thanks for the good questions. I appreciate it. This episode was recorded on August second, two thousand eighteen. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and at ScratchingTheSurface.fm. Thanks for listening.